1: As a result of the murders of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, three people were convicted. Damien Eccles, Jesse Kelly, and Jason Baldwin. Throughout the past few months, you've heard how Damien was the initial suspect and the target of the West Memphis PD's investigation. As the timeline goes, Damien is pegged as a suspect within hours of the discovery of the bodies by Steve Jones and James Sudbury. Jones and Sudbury went to Damien's house to interview him on the day after the discovery. Two days later, police found him again at the Lakeshore Trailer Park, specifically at his best friend, Jason Baldwin's house. Police interviewed Damien, Jason, and even Damien's girlfriend, Domini, to an extent. The next day, Damien went into the station where he was interrogated, submitted to a polygraph test, and volunteered biological samples for testing and comparison. Vicki Hutchison was working with Marion P.D., Assistant Chief Don Bray, about the same time. Her son Aaron gave multiple, ever-changing statements and eventually told officers that he was actually present at the time of the murders. Then Vicki volunteers to assist the police in getting a confession from Damien Eccles. Her plan was to have a friend introduce her to Damien. She would play satanic and witchcraft books around her house, based on the police theory that the boys were murdered by Eccles in a satanic ritual. Then, enter Jessie Miss Kelly. Jessie was a friend of Vicky's and an acquaintance of Damien's. Prior to this, Jessie was not a suspect, or even on the police radar for that matter. Vicky asked Jessie to introduce her to Damien, and he obliges. Vicky, quote, plays detective with Damien and discovers... nothing. As we know, she testified at trial that Damien took her to an occult meeting slash orgy, but then later recanted saying that she made the whole thing up. Essentially, Vicky got nothing, leaving the West Memphis PD in a bit of a pickle. Damien was their best suspect based on the satanic ritual theory, but they had nothing on him, literally nothing. So then they bring Jesse Miss Kelly in for questioning because of Vicky, the detectives knew that Jesse was an acquaintance of Damien's. On June 3rd, Jesse was brought in for questioning about Damien During the undate portion of the interview, the note suggests that Ridge and Gitchell bring Jason Baldwin into the conversation, Baldwin being Damien's best friend. Prior to Miss Kelly's June 3rd confession, the police had zero evidence against Damien and had not even tried to build a case against Jason that I'm aware of. So there's the answer to the first question regarding the case against Jason Baldwin. There was no case. Until Jesse Miss Kelly included Jason in his so-called confession on June 3rd. Jason Baldwin was arrested on the very night that Jesse implicated him in the murders. From there, the prosecution had to begin building their case against him. On the night that he was arrested, Jason did not give a statement to the police, at least not an official statement. According to Jason, he told police that he had no involvement in the murders and knows nothing about them. He says that the police kept telling him that his friend told them that he was there. Jason kept asking what friend they were talking about and they refused to tell him. He was then presented with a rights form. The form explained his constitutional rights to remain silent and to an attorney. Jason initialled the form acknowledging that he understood his rights. His mother had previously told him not to talk to the police without a lawyer. At the bottom of the form, there was a clause where the suspect could sign to waive his or her rights to an attorney. Jason refused to waive that right and the questioning ceased. There were no notes taken by police on the night of Jason's arrest. The sequence of events I just discussed come directly from him and not the police. At this point, the entirety of the prosecution's case against Jason was Jesse Miss Kelly's statement, which, as you know, was riddled with errors and inconsistencies. On top of that, there was no guarantee that Miss Kelly would even be willing to testify against Baldwin, in which case, his statement would not even be admissible. By the time Jason's trial began, Jesse had officially refused to testify against Jason or Damien. Jesse was tried separately and convicted before the Eccles-Baldwin trial. The prosecution was left with three pillars of a case against Baldwin, the first of which I believe proved to be the strongest. Jason was best friends with Damien Eccles. Period. Period. After the trial, the jury created charts during their deliberations. The charts can be viewed on Callahan's website. The chart listed pros, indicators of innocence, and cons, indicators of guilt. On the pros side for Jason Baldwin, the jurors listed school. Jason regularly attended school before the fifth, on the fifth, and after the fifth through the end of the year. Next it says stuck to story, which is odd because as far as the jury knew, Jason had never told any story. He never gave any statement to police and did not testify at the trial. Then lastly, on the pro side, it says exhibited remorse, which is another odd one, since, again, all the jury was supposed to know of Jason was what they observed, him sitting at a table, not speaking through the entire trial. Next we'll move on to the con side, which will be our focus for the remainder of the episode. These would be the points of the prosecution's case that resonated with the jurors. The first item listed, which also happens to be the only item on the list with a check mark next to it, reads, quote, Damien Best Friend. Jason's attorney repeatedly attempted to separate his trial from Damien's, but Judge Burnett denied every motion put before him on the subject. Baldwin's attorneys knew that the state had little to no case against him, but they also knew that if Eccles was convicted, Baldwin would likely go down with him, guilty by association. The next item on the jurors' list was, quote, Jailhouse Confession. Months after Jason's arrest in January of 1994, a young man named Michael Carson told his father that Jason Baldwin had confessed to him while they were serving time together in the Craighead County Detention Center. Carson's father called prosecuting attorney Brenton Davis. Michael and his dad then went to Davis's home to tell him what happened. On January 20th, Carson was interviewed in polygraph by state police investigator C.A. Beal. Beal wrote out the following report on February 2nd. Carson was interviewed at the Arkansas State Police CID office in Jonesboro, Arkansas on January 20th, 1994 at approximately 12.30 p.m. by investigator C.A. Beale. Carson related the following information. I was in jail at the Craighead County Detention Center in early August or September 1993. I was there about a week to a week and a half. Jason Baldwin was already in jail. I was rooming with another boy by the name of Jason, last name unknown. We were playing cards, Jason, last name unknown, myself, Betel, and Baldwin. The other Jason was my partner, and Betel and Baldwin were partners. We were playing spades. Mainly I was learning how to play spades. I came straight out and asked Baldwin if he did it, and he said no. The next day, they had just called us in to go to our cells for lunch. I said just between me and you, did you do it? Baldwin's answer was, yes, I did it. We had about two minutes to talk. Baldwin told me that, quote, we sucked the blood from a penis. He never used the word scrotum. He told me, we played with the balls after they were out of the skin. Baldwin told me that Damien did this along with him. Baldwin said, when we get all this over with, he's going to kick Miss Kelly's ass. Baldwin told me that he put the balls in his mouth and sucked blood out of the penis. Actually, it wasn't until two or three days later that Baldwin told me the gory details about the balls in the penis. Baldwin told me I'm going to walk straight out of here. They don't have evidence on me. My parents are going to throw a party for me. Baldwin sounded like they only cut one dick off. The first person I ever told was my dad. I was watching TV and he was on the couch. I told my dad what Baldwin had admitted to me. He asked me would I take a lie detector test and talk to cops. First I told my dad I didn't want to get involved with this. Yesterday my dad called the prosecuting attorney. I went to his house and talked to him. Brent Davis. I told Brent Davis that Baldwin looked me straight in the eye and told me that he did it. A black guy that was in jail for murder may have heard the same thing I did. The only thing I know him by is his first name, Leonard. I'm not asking anything in return. I don't want anything. I would refuse anything in return. I'm telling this because it is the truth. Me and Baldwin never got into it over anything. At this point, the interview was concluded at approximately 1.30 p.m. Carson gave a second recorded statement on February 1st, and he testified at trial. For the most part, Carson's story stays consistent with a few minor changes. For example, the time frame shifts several times. In his various statements and testimony, he was either in jail with Baldwin for a week and a half, a week, or just five days. He also says that he was in lockdown for the first three days he was there, but the days overlap with some of the confession stories. Sometimes he says Jason confessed all at once during lunch... The day after the Spades game, sometimes he denies it during the Spades game and admits it the next day, and gives the details a couple days later, and in one version Jason confesses in detail while the two were cleaning up after a Spades game. The game of Spades is part of the narrative in every version, although the details change a bit. In January, he says that Jason Baldwin, another Jason, and someone named Betel were playing cards. February, he says that Jason was playing spades with two black guys, while he, Carson, was watching TV. The three asked him to join into the game. No other Jason or Betel in this version. Then a trial, it's the two Jasons and Betel playing cards, and they ask him to play. He says that he doesn't know how, and they say they'll teach him. There are some subtle changes in the general narrative of Jason putting the boy's testicles in the mouth and, quote, sucking the blood from the penis, but for the most part, the story is pretty consistent. One glaring issue is the fact that Carson says that Baldwin told him that he and Damien had cut the penis off of one of the boys. This would be the penis that Jason supposedly confessed to, quote, sucking the blood out of. The problem is that there was no penis cut off. As you know, Chris Byers' penis was skinned or degloved. It was not cut off or removed. Now, this may seem insignificant, but remember, Jason is supposedly giving a first-hand account of what He did. And remember when Dr. Peretti testified, he said that it would be an extremely difficult process to skin the penis in the way that it was with a knife. In fact, he said that he doesn't think that he would have the skill to do it. Now, disclaimer here I'm about to discuss some very unsettling details about Byers' injuries. Fast forward about 30 seconds if you'd prefer not to listen to this part. As you're aware, another theory is that Christopher's genitals were fed upon by turtles or other scavengers after his body was placed into the ditch. This would be a very different procedure with the same result. An animal would have chewed off the scrotum and testes and ripped the skin off the penis along with the scrotum in one motion. This process is known as degloving. And if this were the case, it wouldn't take a knife or any kind of precision whatsoever. In either case, Chris Byer's penis was not cut off. It was still intact. Only the skin was removed. A detail that Jason Baldwin was not likely to forget had he actually been the one performing the procedure. I'll also point out that in Carson's February interview with Beale, he says, quote, dismembered them and sucking the blood out of their scrotums and playing with their balls in his mouth, end quote. In this early version, Carson is speaking with plurals, indicating that multiple boys had been sexually mutilated. Michael Carson's testimony, on its surface, seems sort of accurate to the crime. However, as I just went over, when you look a little deeper, you see that it's close, but not exact. And that's assuming that Dr. Warner Spitz was completely wrong when he determined that the killer didn't sexually mutilate the boys at all, citing animal predation as the source of these injuries. So, how could Carson have gotten the details close, but still incorrect? the answer to that question may lie in a counselor that treated Michael named Danny Williams right after the break.
0: In that case,
1: I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Danny Williams worked with Michael Carson at a facility called Recovery Way. Shortly after Carson gave a statement to police, he went to a counseling session with Williams. In the session, he told Williams what he had told the police. According to Williams, Carson had simply relayed information that he himself had given him in earlier sessions, when they were discussing the murders and other satanic activities. Williams first went to Jason's attorney, Paul Ford, then on February 18th, he sat down for a recorded interview with prosecutor Brent Davis. This occurred before the trial. Williams' purpose was to warn the DA that he believed Michael Carson was lying and was intending to lie at the trial. In 2004, Danny Williams swore out an affidavit explaining that he had no relationship with Paul Ford, but did, however, have a professional relationship with Prosecutor Brent Davis. In the affidavit, Williams says that he believes that the information Carson testified to at trial, in fact, came from him during their sessions. Williams was trying to warn Michael not to go down the wrong path, or he might end up like the guys that he spent time with in the juvenile detention center. From the affidavit, quote, I'd explained to him that if he did not see certain behaviors, he might end up in a situation like that of the so-called West Memphis Three. I explained to him that he might end up in detention with the sorts of persons who had mutilated bodies and cut the scrotums off of little boys. I wanted to impress Michael Carson to motivate him to change his behavior. It was during the course of this session with Michael that I made references to the facts that I heard discussed in the community generally as well as in the community that I worked in. End quote. Williams goes on to say that because of his job, he was in and out of the courthouse daily and worked closely with Prosecutor Davis. He was never called to testify at trial. Not having the advantage of hearing from Danny Williams, the jury put Carson's testimony in the number two slot of the cons category for Jason Baldwin at his trial. The third item on the con list was low self esteem. Again, the jury never heard Baldwin speak, so it's unclear how they came to this conclusion. I believe that the inference was that Jason was a follower, and since he was best friends with Damien, he was likely to have participated in the murders with him. Next, the jurors' charts read Fiber Match. Now, we've already discussed the red fiber in detail in previous episodes. The nuts and bolts are that a red rayon fiber was found at the crime scene. Jason's mother had a red rayon bathrobe. The jury was presented with expert testimony that the robe could not be excluded as the source of the fiber. Of course, as I've noted before, modern technology has deemed this type of microscopic fiber analysis to be considered junk science. In fact, in 2012, three experts examined the fiber evidence and determined that all of the fibers collected at the crime scene and presented at trial as being microscopically similar to fibers collected from Baldwin and Eccles' homes were, in fact, not similar. The fibers were analyzed by forensic chemist Dr. John Goodpaster of Purdue University, Christopher Bomarito, formerly of Michigan State Police Crime Lab, and criminalist Max Hoke, formerly of the FBI Crime Lab and FBI Trace Evidence Collection. After the testing was complete, Baldwin's attorneys wrote the following to District Attorney Scott Ellington in a letter. Quote, the bottom line is that in 2012, three forensic scientists have looked at the fibers made available by the Arkansas State Crime Laboratory, and all three applied their expertise to the fiber evidence review. They demonstrate that the initial opinions expressed, which became part of the state's case, were wrong." The question fibers examined in 2012 should have been clearly described as unrelated to the fibers that were taken from the Eccles and Baldwin residences during the investigation. End quote. (music) Had the jury been aware of the fact that the fibers were in fact not similar to those collected from Jason Baldwin's home, I believe item number four would not have made it onto the con side of the chart. The next item on the jurors' list reads knife. What they were referring to is what has come to be known as the, quote, lake knife. On November 17, 1993, the Arkansas State Police dive team was asked to search the lake behind Jason Baldwin's trailer. According to Gitchell at the time, they had received no tip regarding the knife. In fact, he told the West Memphis Evening Times that, quote, His department has wanted to do a search of the lake for several months, but this is the first opportunity they had to do it, end quote. Within 20 minutes of entering the water, still on his first tank of air, diver Joel Mullins found a survival-type knife blade down in the mud about 35 feet from the end of Baldwin's pier. Now, as a past member of our fire department's dive rescue team myself, I can say with confidence that Mullins was incredibly lucky to find the knife so quickly. The search process is a slow and tedious one. Luckily for him, he began his search in the exact right spot. The search for the knife is interesting. There were three knives recovered near the crime scene that were never linked to the murders. There was also a pond right behind the blue beacon, just a few yards away from the crime scene, and they never dove or searched in that pond. In fact, the only place that the divers were ever dispatched to was the lake directly behind Jason Baldwin's pier. To make matters worse, in 2008, during the post-conviction investigation, Damien's girlfriend at the time of the murders, Dominique Tier, as well as a young man named Garrett Schwarting, told investigators that they had told police back in 1993 that they were aware that a large knife had been thrown into the lake well before the murders. And to add further suspicion to the discovery, one of the dive team members told investigators that the divers were given precise directions on where they could find the knife then, to add insult to injury, the press was allegedly called and asked to come out to the lake because the police were about to find something. They did just that, and the photo of diver Joel Mullen still in the water holding the Rambo-type knife made the front page of the paper the very next day. In my opinion, it seems pretty clear that the West Memphis PD knew that that knife was in the lake, and they knew right where it was at. But even with that, How did it get there? Well, according to Jason Baldwin, he himself threw the knife into the lake. This past December, I visited Jason in Texas. He told me that he kept the knife in his tackle box. He was out fishing on the dock when he got into an argument with his mother. He says that he held the knife by the sheath and feigned throwing it into the lake, except the sheath stayed firmly gripped between his fingers and the knife did not. According to Jason, this incident occurred the summer before the murders were committed. The big question is, was the Lake Knife used in the murders of Christopher, Michael, and Stevie? At trial, Dr. Peretti testified that while he believes most of the injuries came from a serrated knife, he could not conclude that this knife caused the injuries. He never identified it as the murder weapon. And rightly so, as the Lake Knife was in fact not a serrated knife. The Rambo-type survival knife had a smooth non-serrated blade. The top or back edge of the blade was not smooth like the front. However, it was not a serrated edge either. The back of these types of knife are not serrated knife blades. They're actually designed to be used as saws. They contain large, about quarter-inch teeth with about the same amount of space in between them. And let's not forget that in Jesse Kelly's so-called Confession, he describes Jason's knife at the crime scene as being a six-inch folding knife not a 14-inch fixed-blade survival knife.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: Nonetheless, in his closing arguments, Prosecutor Vogelman demonstrated for the jury as he hit the back of a grapefruit with the back edge of the lake knife. He pointed out the similarities of the patterns he had just created on the grapefruit and some of the wounds found on the boys. To my knowledge, no one has ever taken actual measurements of the saw teeth on the knife and compared them to the wounds on the boys. And, as I said, Peretti wasn't about to make the claim that the lake knife was the murder weapon. But nonetheless, Fogelman made his, I'm not saying this is the murder weapon, but this is the murder weapon, appeal to the jurors, and apparently they bought it. Whatever the jurors wrote next on their con list was actually scribbled out. Next to the scribbles, the words no and discard are written with arrows pointing to them. Although we do get a little insight as to what might have been written when we look at juror number seven's personal notebook, number seven listed out the cons in his own notes. Only in this list we find quote J Misk state. And just in case you're thinking that doesn't mean that the jury considered Miss Kelly's confession, juror number seven gets a little more detailed in the notes on Damien Eccles. The note in the con list for Eccles reads quote. Jesse Miss Kelly test led to arrest, end quote. Journal number seven also demonstrates a bit of confusion on the fiber evidence. While the main list reads, quote, fiber match in the con category for Baldwin, number seven wrote fiber and in parentheses DNA. As I'm sure you're aware, there was never any DNA found linking any of the convicted three to the crime scene, and yet here we have DNA listed in the con category for Jason Baldwin. The last item on the juror's list of cons for Baldwin reads, quote, frequented crime scene, end quote. This is another confusing note. As I've said several times, Jason Baldwin did not testify at trial, and no evidence was entered indicating that he had ever been to the crime scene before. But, par for the course, the jury considered this as an indication of Jason's guilt. So, that's it. What I've just described to you was the entirety of the state's case against Jason Baldwin. The jury believed Michael Carson's testimony that Jason had confessed to him, they believe that the fibers from the crime scene could be traced back to Jason's house, and they believed that the so-called lake knife not only belonged to Jason, but that it was also linked to the murders, despite the fact that there was no evidence presented indicating as much. But to be honest, I think that the first item on the list is what really led to Jason's conviction. The top spot. The one with the check mark next to it. Jason Baldwin was convicted because he was Damien Eccles' best friend. And with that, there's really nothing left that I can tell you about the case against Jason. You've heard it all. There really wasn't a case against him whatsoever. There is, however, more to this story, but that's a story that can only be told by Jason Baldwin himself. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, We also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do Is engage in the investigations You can keep in touch with us through our email At theories at truthandjusticepod.com You can like our Facebook page Or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page and for all of you tweeters You can follow along on Twitter At TruthJusticePod And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open For questions, comments, or tips on the case That phone number is 269-224-2833